The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World. Episode 45, The Battle of Bannockburn. Before the Neolithic Revolution, the British Isles and especially the Scottish lands of Great Britain were somewhat uninhabitable due to the colder climate. We can then see the emergence of hunter-gatherers with their bone tools, building wooden and stone houses as well as being boat builders. In the latter centuries of the first millennium BCE, Scottish lands saw an upsurge of stone burial cairns and stone circles similar in nature to Stonehenge much further south. Small fortified villages and artificial islands called Cranogs point towards a hostile environment and stone houses started becoming more diverse in their structures. Before the Roman invasion of Great Britain, classical world societies certainly had their trade routes open with the British Isles and sailors had circumnavigated the islands bringing knowledge of their geography back to the Mediterranean powers. Scotland seems evidently to have been a mixture of clans and tribes battling for supremacy over one another in a warrior society. The Romans attempted to invade Great Britain from the 1st century BCE onwards until they eventually succeeded in occupation during the following century and within the first few decades they had subjugated the territories of the modern countries of England and Wales. The Roman Emperor Hadrian ordered the construction of a wall that crossed the slim island of Great Britain from west to east close to the modern border between Scotland and England. When Antoninus Pius succeeded Hadrian, the Romans pushed further north and built a wall along the line of the Forth River across to the west coast, which would become known as the Antonine Wall. This wall was built close to the site of the Battle of Bannockburn. The Egyptian-Roman polymath Claudius Ptolemy mentioned in his treatise called the Geographia that the lands around the Antonine Wall were occupied by peoples who he called the Damnoni. It is likely that they are a Brythonic peoples, but it is thought that Pictish societies may have already started migrating to Scottish lands from Ireland, so there could have been a cultural mix. The Romans never quite gained a foothold in Scottish lands. The highlands themselves were almost impenetrable and too much energy and effort was required to take the land so despite the Romans' repeated attempts, they would never be able to dominate. When the Romans had to retreat in the 5th century, it was the Picts who were the most dominant peoples in the lands of today's Scotland. Pictish domination can be recognised as being in the Scottish Highlands to the north of the Forth River, while Brythonic peoples occupied the area south, 
so the site of Bannockburn existed as a crossroads of societies. The Fourth River often acted as a natural border between opposing societies and peoples. One of those who expanded northwards along the east coast from the south were the Angles who had migrated to the east coast of Great Britain from the borderlands of the modern countries of Denmark and Germany on the Jutland Peninsula. The Angle Kingdom was called Benicia and it would later amalgamate with another Angle Kingdom called Dera to become the combined kingdom of Northumbria. The unconquered Brythonic lands to the west of Bernicia would develop to become the Kingdom of Strathclyde. Towards the end of the first millennium, the Angle kingdoms would be heavily influenced by Danish Viking settlers, which would create a hybrid of the two peoples until ultimately by the 10th century, the Kingdom of Wessex in the far south of the island had extended its influence to subjugate this hybrid Northumbrian kingdom and therefore created a Wessexian kingdom that stretched from the Forth River to the south coast and this would be the beginnings of what we would recognise today as the Kingdom of England. To the north of the Forth River, the Gaelic society of Dauriada had somehow either merged with or conquered the lands of the Picts, creating a united kingdom called Alapa, which was the beginnings of the Kingdom of Scotland. The Kingdom of Scotland As mentioned previously, the current lands of Scotland were occupied by various insular Celtic clans and tribes. Many of the tribes of these lands were Brythonic language speakers, including the Pictish peoples, until Goidelic language speakers, to whom we can refer to as Gaelic language speakers, occupied the lands of Argyll and Bute and the Isle of Arran and this area would be referred to as the Kingdom of Dauriada. By the 6th century, the highlands to the north of Dauriada and the Forth River were dominated by the Picts and could be recognised as a kingdom. The remaining Brythonic tribes occupied the western lowlands, which would become the Kingdom of Strathclyde, whereas Angles would occupy Lothian and lands to the south, which would be recognised as the Northumbrian kingdoms. Next came the pressure of Norse invasion of the Scottish mainlands from the islands surrounding it, such as the Hebrides and the Orkneys. Also, Danes had become highly influential over the Northumbrian kingdoms. The occupants of Dalriada are likely to have had to move further inland, encroaching on the lands of the Picts, who themselves were also likely defending their territories from Norse invaders. The king of Dalriada from 841 was Kenneth MacAlpin, and he also became the king of the Picts shortly afterwards. The sequence of events is one of the great mysteries of Scottish history, but we do know that the Amalgamated Kingdom existed as the Kingdom of Alapa, recognised by historians as the beginnings of a Scottish national kingdom. By the following century, the beginnings of what we can recognise as an English kingdom had also been established. 
the Scots of the Kingdom of Alapa, which would become known as Scotland, would continue dealing with tensions with the Britons of Strathclyde and the Angles of Northumbria, but they would also have to deal with the Norwegian and Danish Vikings attacking from the sea, as well as dealing on a political level with the growing influence of the Wessexians of England and the kingdoms of Ireland. The English kingdom very suddenly became quite powerful at the beginning of the 10th century, and the Scots formed a coalition with the Hiberno-Vikings of Ireland and the Strathclydians against their common enemy. At the resulting Battle of Brunenburg, the English were able to defeat the coalition. After the battle at Brunenburg, Scotland would go back to their local battles again. The battles between the Scots and the English over the lands of Lothian are particularly notable as the first border challenges between the two nations. The nation of England had been successfully invaded by the Normans from the French side of the English Channel during the 11th century, which brought across to Great Britain many French qualities of politics, including language, laws and legal systems. When Malcolm III was the King of Scotland during the 11th century, these influences started to become known in Scotland, leading to the beginning of the Scoto-Norman period. Malcolm's young son David was exiled to England, where he would learn more about Anglo-French culture, including the feudal system, which he would later encourage in Scotland on his accession to the Scottish throne as King David I. David would benefit from the civil disorder in England called the Anarchy, and he extended Scottish influence over the borderlands of Northumbria. The Scots had subsumed the Kingdom of Strathclyde in the previous century, which meant that Scotland resembled the territory that we know today before David became the king. When Henry II of the Plantagenets became the king of England after the Anarchy, he would be quick to state that these lands were legally English and that the Scots had no claim on them. During a revolt, Henry II would capture King William I of Scotland, who was David I's grandson, and nicknamed William the Lion. And the subsequent Treaty of Falaise forced William to recognise Henry's overlordship. It would be Henry's son Richard the Lionheart who would renege on the treaty, selling Scotland back to the Scots in order to fund his crusades. One of the more noted kings of Scottish history was Alexander III. Alexander would enter into a military conflict with King Magnus VI of Norway over possession of the Hebrides and the Isle of Man. After the success at the Battle of Largs in 1263, the Norwegians retreated and Scottish territory expanded to include these islands. The Kingdom of England Anglo-Saxons populated much of the southern half of Great Britain after the Romans had left the island in the 5th century, leaving a Romano-Britain population behind to be invaded by Germanic-speaking peoples arriving from the east, the bulk part of which were Angles and Saxons. 
The Anglo-Saxons existed in a patchwork of kingdoms until the arrival of the Vikings from the 8th century onwards. Initially, the Vikings raided British lands until a significantly larger amount of Vikings arrived, who have been named the Great Heathen Army, with intent to settle. Initially, the Great Heathen Army landed in East Anglia, but they conquered the Kingdom of Northumbria, which meant that they were directly influential over a portion of the border with the newly established Kingdom of Alipa. Other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms fell to the Danish Vikings. The Kingdom of Wessex in the south was the last Anglo-Saxon kingdom not to fall to the Danes, and they occupied half of the neighbouring Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Mercia as well, while the Danes moved into the other half. The Brythonic kingdoms of Cornwall, Wales and Strathclyde, as well as the kingdom of Alipa, remained independent. It would be the Wessexian king Alfred the Great who would block the further advance of the Danes. Over the course of the following generations, the lands to the south of the kingdom of Alipa were contested over by the Wessexians and the Danes. Under Alfred's grandson, King Ethelstan, Wessex extended its influence over all of the lands under Danish influence, also known as the Danelaw. This is recognised by historians as the beginnings of the Kingdom of England, as the kingdoms of all of the Angles were now united. The Kingdom of England was very fruitful and very defensible, so therefore it was a very attractive acquisition. Viking people showed a constant interest in claiming and regaining lands throughout the 10th and 11th centuries, and this would affect the Kingdom of Alipa and the island of Ireland too, as they would also be a target for the Norwegian and Danish Vikings. In 1066, the Normans, led by William the Conqueror, successfully invaded the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of England, and territory would undergo a political upheaval. Many French cultural aspects crossed the English Channel with the Normans, including some of their military strengths. The Normans would have ambitions of extending their influence over the Welsh kingdoms and the lands of the Scots also. During the 12th century, a succession crisis took place, which weakened the nation of England. King Henry I died with no male heir, and the crown would be fought over by his nephew Stephen and his daughter Matilda. The country was divided and distracted during the civil dispute called the Anarchy, and this allowed its neighbours, and in particular Scotland, to consolidate its borderlands following the early Norman monarchs' aggressions. After the anarchy, the Plantagenets became the English monarchs, and this signalled the gradual distancing and emergence of the rivalry between the crowns of England and France. King Henry II of England would force King William I of Scotland to sign a treaty which restricted Scotland's powers, so Scotland was not a huge hindrance in the later years of the 12th century. King Henry III of England agreed the borders between England and Scotland with King Alexander II of Scotland during the 13th century, but it would be the succession crisis in Scotland following the death of King Alexander III of Scotland that would bring King Edward I of England's attention to Scotland. 
Edward would force his authority over Scotland by interfering in their national politics. Edward forcibly deposed the Scottish King John Balliol, leaving the country without a monarch. Scotland was divided with some of the nobles showing loyalty to the English king, while others mounted rebellions against the English with one of the most notable individuals being William Wallace. William Wallace would try to push back against English garrisons in Scotland but had mixed fortunes. King Edward would put a price on Wallace's head and so Wallace was betrayed, captured and given to Edward who took him back to London and tried him for treason. This resulted in Wallace being hanged, drawn and quartered but this did not stop the feeling of rebellion in Scotland. Robert the Bruce Robert the Bruce's family lineage can be traced back to the Norman invasion of England over 200 years earlier. It is difficult to pinpoint with total confidence the exact family line. It is suggested by some texts that a Robert de Bruce actually accompanied William the Conqueror on his campaigns in England, but it is arguable whether this Robert de Bruce was the father of the man who we know to have been made the first Lord of Annandale, referring to lands in Scotland. The King of Scotland at the time was King David I and David was an ally of the English King Henry I, a son of William the Conqueror. So it appears that the de Bruce family were gifted lands in Yorkshire by the Norman rulers of England before David gifted Annandale to Robert de Bruce who campaigned on the continent with both Henry and David. The Lordship of Annandale passed down the de Bruce family line very neatly from father to son for around 200 years. All of the lords were called Robert de Bruce apart from the third lord who was called William. The fifth lord was a rival to John Balliol for the Crown of Scotland during the Great Cause which was a programme to find a new king following the end of the line of Alexander III. The seventh lord was the Robert de Bruce of today's story, the one popularly known to history as Robert de Bruce. With his noble birth, historians feel confident that he would have benefited from an excellent education and when he was old enough, he would be trained to be a knight. Robert the Bruce would become the Earl of Carrick while his father was still alive and he would have to swear an oath of fealty to King Edward I of England for security. Robert did support the initial rebellion of William Wallace, but after Wallace was defeated and fled for France, King Edward would lay waste to Robert's lands as a punishment. Robert would have to bow down to Edward once again and be allowed to become a guardian of Scotland, acting as a regent for the country without a monarch. William Wallace returned to Scotland before being captured and executed by King Edward. The feeling of rebellion against the English was still high in Scotland and Robert the Bruce was quick to have his supporters proclaim him as the new King of Scotland after he had killed one of his peers, John Cumming, something that threatened 
to plunge Scotland into a civil war between the supporters of both men. However, the English would object to Robert's actions and Robert was defeated at the Battle of Methven in 1306 and had to disappear into the depth of Scottish lands to remain undetectable. The legend of Robert the Bruce sitting in a cave watching a spider continually attempt to climb its gossamer thread and refusing to give up comes from this period. It is said that the spider inspired Robert to not give up on his plan to fight back against his exile. Different sites claim to be the location of Bruce's cave, including Kirkpatrick Fleming near the modern West English border and Rathlin Island, just off the coast of Northern Ireland. Robert sprang back into action, this time returning to Scotland with support and from the West, and dealt the English garrison some defeats which prompted King Edward I to decide to return to Scotland himself and deal with Robert. However, Edward only got as far as the border before illness took his life. The throne of England would pass to his son. King Edward II of England When Edward I died, he had exhausted a lot of the country's wealth, so his son would not necessarily have the best start to his reign. Edward II also lacked self-confidence, which could be down to how he was treated by his father. His father was known as Edward Longshanks, referring to his impressive height, and Edward II would inherit this trait too. However, the young Edward did not have the channeled aggression of his father, preferring artistic pursuits and the fact that his father was known to rough him up a bit when he was a bit disappointed in him may have contributed to his lack of self-confidence. Edward also seemed to be open to influence from those who he admired and one such character was Piers Gaveston, a young noble who was the same age as the young Edward and appeared to lead him astray with his immature sense of humour. King Edward I despaired at how his son was more interested in hijinks with Gaveston than with matters of the state that he was the heir to, and so Gaveston was chucked out of the royal court. However, when King Edward I died, Gaveston was welcomed back to the court by Edward II with open arms. Edward II married Isabella of France, the daughter of King Philip IV of France. When Edward travelled to France to receive Isabella, Gaveston was the regent of England in his absence. Gaveston would make all of the arrangements for the wedding and rather bizarrely, Gaveston would make himself a central part of the ceremony, something that upset the new queen and many of the nobles. With Gaveston's outrageous public displays of affection towards Edward and Edward's penchant towards showering Gaveston with honours, many have suggested that the two were in a homosexual relationship. Edward's Queen Isabella made a great effort to remain dignified within this unseemly triangular relationship. The barons were sick of Gaveston gaining more than was reasonable and demanded that he be sent into exile. But sure enough, Gaveston was able to return again 
and apparently had not changed his character to avoid the disgust of the barons once again. The barons attempted to lay down the law to Edward by compiling a new manifesto, somewhat similar to what the barons had tried to do with Edward's great-grandfather King John when they issued him with the Magna Carta. Edward was weak in rule of the nation and Gaveston was taking advantage of his ability to expropriate wealth and favour for himself. So the barons pointed the finger firmly at Gaveston for being the problem and so they captured him and put him to death. While Edward was concerning himself over the barons executing his court favourite Piers Gaveston, Robert the Bruce was slowly reclaiming all of the lost castles in Scotland until he was closing in on the highly important castle at Stirling. King Edward II had no choice but to act. He had ventured half-heartedly into Scotland previous to this, but this time he raised a huge army and travelled north. Prelude to the Battle Possibly around 15 to 20,000 English cavalry and infantry made the journey northwards with their King Edward II and they arrived at Berwick on the 10th of June, the town whose population Edward's father had slaughtered 18 years previous. In the meantime, Robert the Bruce was also preparing his own forces for the battle. He would gather them in an area around Stirling Castle, but their numbers were considerably less than the English. He could only raise between five and 10,000, which included heavily armoured knights, infantry and a small number of light cavalry. So despite Edward's lack of popularity in his kingdom, England, he was able to muster an army considerably bigger than the Scottish army. Robert was selecting the perfect defensible location from which to make the English approach as narrow as possible and to make a hasty escape possible for the Scots should they get overrun. The Scots would dig large invisible pits covered in grass and twigs on the battlefield also to hinder the approaching English troops and cavalry. In the meantime, Edward had left it late to move from Berwick to Stirling and had to hurry his army along the last section, a move which has been criticised as foolish as it may have exhausted his army. The deadline for when the English garrison were going to be forced to relinquish the castle to the besieging Scots was fast approaching. The Scots also faced a decision. They had an opportunity to release their siege on Stirling Castle and head north deeper into the Highlands, where the odds would likely favour them more than their current position. This may have been sensible given the disparity of numbers between the two armies, but Robert chose to stand firm and defend his position around Stirling Castle. Even though Stirling Castle was to the south of the Forth River, in order for the English to reach Stirling Castle, they would need to cross a tributary of the Forth River called Bannock Burn. When the English vanguard arrived at the Bannock Burn on the afternoon of the 23rd of July, they would be able to actually see Robert the Bruce poorly armoured and without much in the way of defences. 
The Battle of Bannockburn. The English vanguard crossed the Bannockburn to get closer to the Scottish king. Robert the Bruce was not properly armoured for combat, but his army were under the cover of woodland, not so immediately visible. A young knight called Sir Henry de Bouin saw an opportunity to make a rush towards the king, and this resulted in Robert the Bruce violently driving his battle-axe straight through the top of de Bouin's helmet and through his skull. The whole incident may have been a great ruse to entice the English to head towards the woodland at New Park, thereby steering the English army into a favourable location for the Scots. Now the battle was on. The Scots coalesced into their Shiltron formations, which can be described as tightly packed spear-wielding phalanxes. Baron Robert Clifford and Henry de Beaumont of the English forces made a rush for Stirling Castle in order to link up with the besieged English garrison there. Robert the Bruce commissioned his nephew, the Earl of Murray, Thomas Randolph, to cut off Clifford's move. Randolph caused absolute chaos to Clifford's forces, with many of the forces retreating back to the main English army, with just an inconsequential few making it to the castle itself. The first exchanges between members of the English and Scottish armies had been completely disastrous for the English, who had appeared to have lacked a considered plan of action for the approach and the initial exchanges. English morale was reportedly low as dusk fell and both sides conceded that they would need to wait until the following morning to engage with each other again. So the English would strip materials from houses in order to build bridges across the Bannock Burn and move the English army to the other side of the stream. The following morning, the Scots emerged from the cover of the woods. Robert Bruce's younger brother, Edward Bruce, would command the right wing. Randolph, the Earl of Murray, who had successfully cut off the advance of Clifford on the previous evening, was commanding the Scottish left wing. Robert the Bruce was commanding the reserves at the centre. King Edward II still had ambitions of reaching Stirling Castle, but did he have the ability to keep the English army operating as a cohesive unit and keeping the faith in his command despite their disastrous start to the battle? It may have been through miscommunication or sheer frustration that the Earl of Gloucester, Gilbert de Clare, advanced ahead of the English army to engage with the Scots. Either way, he paid for this move with his life, and this was yet another blow for the English, whose cohesiveness throughout the battle had been highly questionable. The Scottish Chilterns, which normally were used defensively against advancing cavalry, were now ordered to advance, buoyed with confidence. Even those not formally within the Scottish army were reportedly joining the charge, including those simply guarding the Scottish encampment. The English didn't really have an organised response for this charge. The English archers were commanded to stop firing arrows as they were striking their own men who were caught up in advanced positions. 
those English archers who attempted to move to the flanks to attack the Scottish Chilterns from a different angle were quickly overrun by Scottish cavalry. The English realised that they were losing the battle and that they and their king needed to be withdrawn. Among the English ranks was a Norman knight who was revered as one of the greatest knights in Europe, Gilles d'Argenton. D'Argenton expressed no desire to retreat with the English and lose face, so he told Edward that he was staying on the battlefield. Predictably, he would not last long attempting to take on the entire Scottish army. Aftermath Edward attempted to gain entry to Stirling Castle, but he was turned away by the commander of the castle, Sir Philip Mowbray, who had decided to switch his allegiance to the Scots following the events of the battle. Edward and the remainder of the English army were forced to find ways to retreat back to England without being run down by pursuing Scottish soldiers and the people of the country itself. Edward would need to escape back to England by sea. Had the English approach been better organised, then it is perceivable that the English would have defeated the Scottish army and claimed Stirling Castle, which could have led to Scotland being consumed into the English kingdom. Some firmly blame Edward II for this failure, for being an inept military leader, unable to inspire his troops and unable to control the commanders within his ranks, who believed they knew better than to follow Edward's command. The Scots had complete confidence in their King Robert the Bruce by comparison. Those female relatives of Robert the Bruce who included his wife and sisters who had been held captive since Robert was defeated at the Battle of Methven eight years earlier were now released and able to return to Scotland. Victory at the Battle of Bannockburn gave the Scots the confidence to be able to assert themselves forward as a nation-state instead of just being a feudal subject to the English. The English still refused to recognise Scottish sovereignty and they did attempt to cross the border again, inconsequentially. The Scots would campaign in Ireland under the command of Edward Bruce, Robert's younger brother, against the Lordship of Ireland, an English lordship first held by King John of England from before he became the king. Edward Bruce would declare himself the Lord of Ireland, despite the legal lord being King Edward II of England. After three years of struggling, the pro-English Irish, sometimes referred to as the Hiberno-Normans, defeated and killed Edward Bruce in 1318. The Declaration of Arbroath in 1320 was a declaration of Scottish independent written toward the Pope who had been trying to implore the Scots to reach a truce with the English, but until the Pope was willing to accept Robert the Bruce as the legal king of an independent Scotland, the Scots would continue to battle for their position. In the aftermath of the Battle of Bannockburn, Edward II would favour the Earl of Winchester, Hugh Le Dispenser, as his new chief advisor, and he would treat his son, Hugh Dispenser the Younger, as his new favourite. The amount of power and favour given to the dispensers by Edward was too much for many of the barons, including the Earl of March, Roger Mortimer. 
the Royalists defeated the Contrariants at the Battle of Boroughbridge, and the Dispensers were able to effectively rule alongside Edward as a consequence, and the integrity of the rule of England was diminished by corruption. At this point, Edward's wife Isabella, who had stayed loyal to Edward during the embarrassment of Piers Gaveston's place at the royal court, decided to go on a diplomatic trip back to her country of origin. Edward II's son and heir, also called Edward by Isabella, was just about a teenager when Isabella decided to head to France with her son. And the anti-royalist contrarian, Roger Mortimer, was there in exile. It seems that Isabella and Mortimer became very close and Isabella refused to return to her husband until the dispensers were stripped of their power. Isabella and Mortimer organised an invasion of England with their aim being to depose Edward II and have the young Edward crowned as Edward III. London was so sick of Edward II themselves that they supported Isabella and Mortimer and Edward had to flee the city. However, he was captured and held prisoner. King Edward II of England died in captivity at Berkeley Castle in Gloucestershire. When Edward died in 1327, it is possible that Robert the Bruce was himself suffering from ill health. The following year, and the 15-year-old Edward III signed letters patent under the regency of Isabella to strike a peace treaty with Robert the Bruce to recognise Scotland as an independent kingdom under the kingship of Robert, who would reign as King Robert I of Scotland, in return for £20,000 sterling. This led to official recognition from the Pope. Robert died in 1329 and his son would legitimately rule over the Kingdom of Scotland as David II. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on the Battle of Bannockburn. And uh, it was a continuation from last week's episode about the uh, the first War of Scottish Independence. And it just rounded off the story of Robert the Bruce and, um, and that first phase of wars between England and Scotland. Um, now, if you enjoyed that episode and you enjoy the podcast in general, you might be pleased to know that you can support the podcast. Just uh, click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. When you do, you become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and you qualify for gifts and rewards. You just simply, if you're not sure where to find the page, just go to the History of the World podcast.com website and click on the Patreon link. The Ancient World Cup. So the Ancient World Cup is a competition run by the History of the World podcast where you get to vote for your favourite ancient teams and they progress in the tournament. We started with 64 teams. This week is the last match in the round of 16. So we find out who the final quarterfinalist is and then we have our last eight teams confirmed uh, for the quarterfinals. Now, this week's... uh, competition this week's match uh, pitted the Achaemenid Persians 
against the Assyrians. Now, we, as we mentioned last week, the Achaemenid Persians, most famously known as being the first major Persian uh, nation who took over the lands of the Babylonians and the Medes uh, under their great King Cyrus the Great. And uh, they caused all sorts of havoc through that for their kings, Darius I, Xerxes I, all sorts of havoc with the Greek nations. The Greek nations of first encounter with these uh, Persians and uh, it led to some great uh, stories of war, the Battle of Marathon, uh, the Battle of Thermopylae, the Battle of Salamis. All of that was the Achaemenid Persians. And uh, they were up against the Assyrians who uh, predated the Achaemenid Persians and uh, they became the greatest empire in the world up until that point and they took over uh, the lands of uh, the, the Jews and even Egypt and uh, were very well known for their uh, ironmongery. They, they were a nation who effectively survived the late Bronze Age collapse and even though the Assyrians did get... Um, squeezed back down into their capital of Assur and, and the city of Nineveh. They did expand once again to become the greatest empire that the world had ever seen. So two real powerhouses. And um, it was a really interesting contest as well. Um, that This is one of the closer contests we've had in the entire um, in the entire tournament. And um, as you may well know, we advertise the competition on the Facebook page and on the Tapper Talk um, Facebook... Um, sorry, I beg your pardon, not the Tapper Talk. We don't do that anymore. Um, <laughs> we, the Tapper Talk discussion forum certainly exists, but we don't do the the, uh, the ancient World Cup on there. Let, let me... Let me reiterate again. We we advertise it on the Facebook page and on the unofficial Facebook fan group, and uh, by amalgamating all the votes that uh, were uh, that were taken on the Facebook pages, both uh, the Achaemenids and the Assyrians got twenty one votes each. So then, looking at the Twitter feed, so we looked at the Twitter uh, poll that was run and. Um, once again, it was 50-50. Ridiculous. So seven votes for each. So we had to go to the Instagram page to find out um, if we could if we could get an, an overall winner. And, and we did. So after 68 votes, I can tell you that the winner and the last team to advance to the quarterfinals with 53% of the vote were the Achaemenid Persians. So now we have our quarterfinal lineup complete, and it is a you've done ever so well, folks. Um, it's a considerable quarterfinal lineup. It's really quite a special last eight that we've got. The matches are the Macedonians versus the Franks. So we've got two nations there that came from humble beginnings and ended up becoming hugely influential. Um, over time, expanding their borders. We've got the ancient Egyptians versus the Sumerians, who are the two oldest civilizations, really, so that we refer to, where the origins of writing, um, so so a real sort of a, like a real ancient matchup there. Then we've got the Romans against the Anglo-Saxons. Well, the Romans gave us probably the most influential European culture that's ever existed. 
And the Anglo-Saxons gave us the most influential language that ever existed in English. And then finally, the fourth quarterfinal, we've got the Athenians versus the Achaemenids. These two um, just battled throughout the, the 5th century BCE. Um, and they're going head to head in this competition. So... I couldn't have I couldn't have created a better quarterfinal lineup. So you should all be very proud of yourself. Now the first quarterfinal, as I go back, would be between the Macedonians and the Franks. So the Macedonians, really made famous by the exploits of Alexander the Great, from humble beginnings in the north of the Balkan Peninsula, they expanded right the way across the Middle East, all the way over to the Indus Valley in the uh, Indian subcontinent, near enough, and. Um, what, probably one of the most considerable expansions ever in the history of the world. And they go up against the Franks, who once again, from humble beginnings in the lands of sort of around Belgium, um, from their humble relationships with the Romans, they ended up expanding to uh, cover a great area of Central and Western Europe. So from the lands of modern France right the way through to Germany, they really were the foundation of the modern countries of France and Germany. So um, that's our match for next week. It's the first quarterfinal, so we're now in the closing stages of the competition. And I would like to ask, for anyone that wants to vote in this competition, who feels strongly about who should advance to the semi-finals between the Macedonians and the Franks, please would you send me a voice message telling me why you think each of these should go through, whichever your preference is. So just send me a voice message or an email just saying the reasons why you believe the Macedonians or the Franks should advance to the semi-finals. Once again, the results will be announced next week. So go to the History of the World podcast.com social media pages and get voting from Monday. Listener messages and reviews. A few messages to read out. Roy Hater has written in and put, Hi Chris, I've been following your series of podcasts with great interest. Beginning with prehistoric times, your chronological description of the fossil record is very clear and helpful in connecting the dots. Your website has links labelled MAP, which would provide useful further explanation, but they do not respond. I would appreciate any suggestion you may have to access these maps. Many thanks, Roy. Um... I don't know if anyone else is having any problems with the maps at all. There doesn't appear to be a problem when I click the links. Um, they appear to work. So just for any of you that um, are not familiar, if you go to the History of the World podcast dot com website and go to the top where it says homepage and episode links, if you hover over that, you can link through to each of the first four volumes uh, of which we're in volume four at the moment. And um, many of them, especially in the earlier volumes, have uh, are accompanied by maps. Uh, you'll get a list of the episodes and then it will say the word map. And you actually have to click physically on the word map to go through to the, uh, to the map itself. If you click on the episode link, it will take you through to Anchor's link for the uh, for the podcast episode. So that's that's not the one you want. So, But is anyone else experiencing the same problem? I don't know. But thank you very much for writing in, Roy, and uh, just expressing that you was having, uh, you was having problems with that. Um, oh, bear with me a moment. I'll just 
having a bit of a technical glitch here. Let me just grab that. That's it. Right, okay, look, I can go back and read the other emails there. Sorry about that. Dave Shatford has written in and said, Hi, Chris, you have done an amazing job. Well done on your very hard work, research, commentary, and openness to feedback. I'm at Volume 2, Episode 20, Egypt Summary, and I'm looking forward to the future episodes, and I know many people will have been informed and entertained by you. Thank you, Dave, New Zealand. P.S. I had to laugh when an American thought you sounded like an Australian. To both New Zealanders and Australians, you are clearly English and nothing like our accents, albeit to an American we must sound the same. Well, I, I, I wouldn't say to all Americans uh, we, we must sound the same, but certainly... Uh, it can be a bit. Uh, it can be a bit deceptive, can't it? I, I, I know it's very difficult for um, for myself to 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 notice the difference between uh, Canadians and Americans, and maybe diff- difficult for me to uh, to hear the, the difference between New Zealanders and Australians. Um, although you know, you can there is a distinct difference, and if you are from those parts of the world, you will notice it straight away. So. Um, so, yeah, just the nature of our English language, isn't it? Um, Sue has written in. I don't have your surname, Sue, I don't think. Um, so um, I'll have to refer to you just as Sue, unfortunately. Uh, but um, you've written in and said, My husband and I just discovered your incredible podcast and we are riveted. We are from Seattle, Washington, USA, and both recently retired. We spend a lot of time in our car travelling to US and Canadian national parks to hike in the warmer weather and to various ski resorts to ski in the winter. We binge listen to your podcast episodes in the car. We've always uh, both enjoyed history, but there are so many gaps in our knowledge. Your podcasts are helping us with our gaps. I only wish there were maps on your website to better identify every location you mention in your podcast episodes. Chris, you talk about flunking out of school, but we think you're brilliant. Thank you. That's very sweet of you, Sue. Yeah, I did flunk out of school. Yeah, I was very irresponsible when I was young. Um, so, um, But now I'm older, I, I decided to do something very responsible and make a podcast. Um, but, um, yeah, <laughs> there we go. Back to the maps again. Back to the maps issue. Isn't that strange that I've got two... Uh, messages this week about the maps um like i say they they appear to be working just fine and um it's been a while since i did do some maps i've I've fallen behind on the map creation but i think the um the intensity by which i'm presenting um the podcast is 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 quite hard for me to keep on top of with uh, everything else going on in my everyday life uh, such as my full-time job etc so um peter weber has written in and written hi chris sitting here in izu japan thinking about obsidian and lucy that were mentioned in some of your podcasts when i was at a high school in auckland new zealand last monday getting a tour i saw a poster of lucy the skeleton and shouted out wow it's lucy and realized that listening to your podcast has had an effect on me i'm am i a history geek now am i a history geek now lol anyway thanks for the great series it has really helped me through covid peter weber canadian guy living in japan um well that's you're a canadian guy living in japan um finding lucy the skeleton in new zealand um so yep i probably think that makes you a history geek 
Anyway, thank you for your message, Peter, and thank you to everyone uh, for uh, sending your messages in. Keep them coming, of course. I, I love to read them out at the end of the podcast. And, uh, of course, uh, don't forget to su- consider supporting the podcast. Just go to the, the Patreon link at thehistoryoftheworldpodcast.com and take your place in that elite list of History of the World podcast Illuminati members. Um, gifts will be getting sent out. At the moment, I'm not able to send anything out uh, due to the um, the problem that we've got with a cyber attack, which has uh, limited our ability to post things internationally. But I'm, I'm going to go down the post office tomorrow and try and get some more information. I've got loads of stuff, loads of gifts to uh, to post out to you all. So I'm, I'm keen to get that done. But anyway, that's my problem. Um, your problem is that you've got another week now to wait until the next episode. Um, the next episode is going to be about the Black Death. So one of the biggest events of medieval history. We're going to uh, discuss everything to do with the Black Death. So it's, you know, quite a morbid episode, but uh, nonetheless, a very important episode in terms of its effects on a historical direction. So the real consequences to the entire thing. So, uh, we'll try and get to the root of what happened, how it happened, how it originated, and and the and the impact of what uh, this uh, devastating disease did to our known world. So until then, uh, that's next week. Thanks for listening this week. Until then, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.